Well, welcome to the Living with Power Hope podcast. I'm Lena Abujamra and I am your host. It is amazing to be with you again. It's a crazy life we're living, crazy times, and I can't wait to talk with our guest today about those things. If you are a regular listener, you know that we fluctuate between conversations with great guests and also a Dear Lena segment where I talk about life and culture and faith. And so today we've got a special guest that's been with us before, a friend of mine, another uh, alma mater graduate. We had recently Wendy Elsop on and she and I graduated from the same school. So I, I just thought it was funny that we've had this uh, college connection here and just proud of those women and what God's done in their lives. Hannah is um, living currently in the Blue Ridge Mountains of of Virginia. I thought that was in West Virginia, Hannah. We'll get to that in a minute. I, I'm not from the United States, so so cut me a little slack there. But she is married to a pastor slash artist. And we're going to hear in a minute about how they're living out their life and calling together. They put out a book called Turning of Days, Lessons from Nature, Season, and Spirit. And it is really been so well received, read a lot of reviews on Amazon and started reading it myself and just enjoying it. Hannah, you are a writer. I mean, it it is fun to read your thoughts and sort of see um, the way you think about things. And so thanks for coming back and being with us. Well, I am so glad to be back, Lena. I enjoy every conversation we have. I really do. Well, I, I appreciate that. And you and I were talking a little bit of the beginning of this, and there's a lot of stuff we want to talk about today, exciting stuff from the SBC and uh, maybe your thoughts on, on what's happening in our church culture in particular. And I think, you know, uh, I think those of you who are listening who are regular churchgoers will sort of a- appreciate maybe um, some of this conversation because it's what everybody's talking about. And sometimes it's hard to decipher through that. But before we get into cultural stuff, I really do want to pause and talk a bit about um, your new book. First of all, it's so pretty. Oh, thanks. Your husband, right? So tell us a little bit about how you all collaborated with, through it and, and are happily married still. Well, it's the <laughs> truth. We will be married 20 years this year. And I would just tell everyone that's the running start that you need to do a book together. <laughs> you, you need so to true. have that kind of track record before you would ever engage in creative endeavors. Um, but as you mentioned, I uh, wrote this book and he did illustrations for it. And we were trying um, to bring his giftedness and the way that he engages the natural world together with my particular giftedness. And um, it's a little bit different than some of the other books that I've written. If um, listeners are familiar with my previous works, they tend to be um, maybe more practical theology, driving toward um, an argument or teaching something in particular. It's a, you know, chapter. It's a very standard form that I take for nonfiction. And this is a departure because it's a set of essays mm-hmm. that are um, shaped around the seasons um, as we experience them here in Southwest Virginia. And I do have to say that that is Southwest Virginia. <laughs> Because okay. here, here it, it there is a difference between South West Virginia and Southwest Virginia. So that the border means something gotcha. to us. Well, I, um, I, I I mean I need a trip there soon. But so Nathan's from that area too, right? He is, and that's a huge part of what brought us back here, and even the impulses within our vocational process and coming to this book. He grew up. Um, up in the mountains in a county that had, I think at the time, maybe 12,000 people in the county. And they had one stoplight for the county and one high school. And I think his graduating class may have had 100, 120. 
That would be all the seniors in the county. So um, he had that kind of background and experience. And I I wasn't in as rural a place, but I grew up in a similar kind of space uh, north of where we are now. And um, when we met, it, it was like we understood. Right? I mean, that, yeah. he was the guy who tested. And so what are these darn spring peepers? Yeah. So in, the, in one of the first essays in the book, I talk about how spring peepers really brought us together. And spring peepers are um, a regional tree frog that you hear their mating songs at the beginning of spring. And it's one of the first signs that spring is coming, that winter is lifting mm-hmm. and you actually have turned a corner and spring is inevitable at this point. And oh. it's so loud. Um, you can just, their their songs just will echo through the, through the evening. And so he, we met and he was one of the first people at the call at college, you know, we were, we were together, um, that understood what they were. And yes. so it was you like, we had, shaken. yeah, <laughs> Instead, so, here you are. So is spring your favorite season because you launched with spring. What was your logic and how you approached the seasons in the book? Well, the, the logic was that I think spring opens us with hope and with all this expectation of the cycle of reproduction, right? So so yeah. it's almost as if the book is starting with that kind of optimism or maybe mm-hmm. even naivete that we all kind of enter into life or even our projects with, where you're right at the beginning, you have the first inception of whatever you're going to pursue. And then it, it seems to me in my experience that everything kind of goes through this arc of growth and you you gradually by the time you hit summer is things are coming together but you're starting to hit some of the problems you're you're starting to see weeds yeah. you're starting to see pests and so i wanted to open the book with spring because it was that kind of um i know that innocence that we mm-hmm. all carry into the beginning of something and then i wanted yeah. to come full circle through the rest of the seasons to show how whatever thing we're working on a project we're working with does have this cycle to it. Um, And you kind of move through that cycle. And by the time you hit fall, you're just grateful for whatever you can get out of your garden. Like you're just exhausted and you're harvesting. And then winter is this kind of Sabbath or recovery period that brings you right back. It rebuilds that hope into you, that rest and that Sabbath that rebuilds that hope into you so that you can enter back into spring again. So that's kind of the logic of starting with spring and moving through the seasons. Where do you think most Christians spend the bulk of their time? Is there (laughs) any, do you think some people have a a personality bend towards one season or the other, or does God sort of force you into rhythms to, to accomplish certain things? I think we get forced into rhythms, but we don't always recognize what's happening because I think in our culture, both within uh, the Western culture and within evangelicalism, we really value productivity. And so we have this heightened sense of I need to be producing. And I don't think we always understand the cycle that is necessary to fruit. And so like when the scripture, Jesus talks about bringing forth fruit, we see that as a static, like, well, I'm always supposed to be being fruitful all the time. I should always have something I can point to that is proving my worth and my work. And I don't think we have a good appreciation for the natural cycle of what it takes to produce fruit, regardless Mm -hmm. of what it is you're being called to. And so when we hit a Sabbath or we hit a winter, we feel like something's wrong. 
that that we have failed somehow and that we're not being fruitful. And, and really, yeah. this is just a pattern that God has built into creation, that there are seasons and cycles in the natural world, and there are seasons and cycles within our own spiritual lives. And the more we think along those lines, I think the better we'll be able to nurture and cultivate what God is doing in our life and to receive it, um, and also to rest when we need to rest, but also get to work when we right. need to get to work. Well, and yeah, we almost hold against God. Like, it's interesting to hear even the story of Nathan. We were catching up and maybe uh, I'd like to ponder that a bit too. Like he, your husband has been a pastor and now he, you know, is, is not, he's transitioning out of that or transitioned out of that. And so we would humanly, like, it's so interesting. We box ourselves ourselves in. It's like, we think, okay, God wants me to do something. And we're like dying in that, but he has these, you know, these creative gifts that God's given him. And now this, you know, new opportunity. And so it's so interesting because even that vocation can be sort of seasonal too. Like, do you think that we tend to do that? And, you know, talk to, a little bit about how he was able to make that transition maybe and how he's adjusting to this new life. Absolutely. We, um, as you said, had been heavily invested in local church ministry for probably seven or eight years this last cycle. Um, had moved to the area where we live now explicitly to serve in a church. And at the end of 2019, um, God called us to the end of that season there. And it wasn't even anything dramatic mm -hmm. or, um, you know, a no scandal. It, yeah, it was <laughs> right. just this awareness that this season has come to an end. And it was an awareness that we had. It was an awareness that the church had. Um, like we all understood mm -hmm. this was the end of a season. Um, we also were somewhat exhausted, you know, mm. to be quite honest, the local church ministry in a smaller church and the environments that we work in can be very taxing. And my husband knew that he just needed um, a time away from that. And so he transitioned out and he had a, a bit of a forced Sabbath, maybe not a Sabbath that we anticipated. It went a little longer than we had anticipated. But within that, God provided everything we needed to give him that space. And yeah. also um, recently within the last six months brought him into work in an art museum. And we don't, wow. people will ask us, well, are you done pastoring? Are you done with the church? And we just are like, we don't know. This, yeah. this is the season and the space that God is cultivating. Um, and I think sometimes because we make it all or nothing, especially with ministry, like yeah. you're either called or you're not called. Yeah. And because we had that question come up that people would say, well, do you feel like God has uncalled you? <laughs> like you had a call to ministry. Do you not have that call now? And with that kind of absolute framing, it's really hard to have cycles. And we just consider this season that it's a season and God is cultivating different things in us. We don't know what the next season will be. Um, we're trying to live patiently within this one and let the work that needs to be done here be done here, but also yeah. know that our vocations are from God and they reveal themselves over time. Yes. I think people can be so freed from, 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 counting themselves out of Christian work with by freeing ourselves from that mentality, which kind of goes along with this productivity. You know, I, I think more, the older I get, maybe, maybe also the way our culture works, the more I see that. And, and I think this is sort of what your book is like a pause, a breath of fresh air of sort of slowing down, which every human who takes time to be in nature 
understands it intuitively and appreciates it, right? So people go hiking, they go camping. And so they know every in us is an understanding that nature can be so healing and soothing. And you sort of do that, but you do it in, in a seasonal day-to-day life. And and I, I, even as I was thinking about talking with you today, I, I chuckled, I thought, but what about the people who live like, like I remember once I picked up a famous person who speaks in the Christian world and I was driving her around back to the airport from the event. And I remember we needed to run a quick errand and I was literally about a, not even a mile from my house. And I live in the vicinity of O'Hare in Chicago in a cute area, Arlington Heights, but apparently not cute enough for someone who came from a different area. And so I remember not saying anything at the beginning, you know, it's sort of being in the car and, and this person said at one point out of nowhere, she looks around and goes, man, this area is butt ugly. And I just laughed so hard in my head because I thought, well, what do I, I'm not going to tell her I live half a mile from here, right? So I just sort of, yeah, I was like, mm, you know, mumbled. But I think about the person who lives in, in an area like, say, but ugly Mount Prospect, Arlington Heights, and, and they might yearn for beauty. Like I'm reading the first few chapters of your book and they really feel like, oh, I want to move there. I watch people's Instagram pictures and they live in exotic places. How do you encourage the person who isn't in a place of beauty, city dwellers, you know, people who really have surrounded by ugliness in some instances, how do you find beauty in day-to-day life? Yeah. And I think one of the things I would, I don't know if I would do this differently, but I do want to explicitly say this. I think we do tend to think of encountering the natural world or beauty as something that's dependent on location. And I would say the benefit of where I live is that there are less, um, there's fewer distractions from nature. So it's like the space has been cleared away and I can um, just focus on the natural world. That doesn't mean that the beauty of God's creation and the glory of God's creation isn't available to us everywhere. It just Mm. means that in a space that has a lot more man-made artifacts like buildings and concrete and all of this, you're going to have to work harder, perhaps, to focus your attention. Because I think ultimately, that's what we're hoping folks will do when they read this book is learn how to give attention that are to things that have always been in front of them, but perhaps they just didn't know to look at or to look at a certain way. So if you're in a space that has a lot of distractions, you know, you, you can you slip away, perhaps, you know, go to a park or go to a green space. And, and that's a possibility. Just get rid of the distractions. But what you might be limited and maybe you can't even do that. You, you still have the weather. You still have a plant on your windowsill. You still have something. You have your own body even with you that are parts of the creation that God has made that we can wonder at and, and observe and, and give attention to. So, so I think it really is about what are you giving attention to and what are the things that might hinder you to be able to give that attention? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I mean, it reminds me of that, you know, stories of people in prison who would you know, can look at the sky and can see beauty there. I, I read recently something where someone said, you know, you look out the prison and you either see mud or sky. Like, I think we're bent to where our eyes are fixed. So I agree. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I think, um, I think that part of the problem is making time for those things. If anything, I think 
less a problem is place and more is time. What are some of the things that you, I mean, you're busy, you've got a writing career, you're on Twitter quite enough, and you've got a family and a pastor's wife and on and on, and you've got a lot of responsibilities. How do you intentionally seek time to go outside, to be in nature, to look out your window in the winter? I mean, how do you fight for that privilege of finding beauty? I think you have to. I think you have to make the time, even if you live in a space like I do, um, you still have so many competing things competing for your attention. And and particularly in the digital age, um, our attention is literally the product that that is the thing that all the websites, all the algorithms are trying to get. And so um, I think you do have to. Um, make an effort is not going to come naturally. And I think one of the things that can be a help in this way that I've found is when I take on a, a project, and and I want to say this um, in the right way, when you have perhaps a plant that you're cultivating or a garden or an animal or something Mm -hmm. that you have committed yourself to, to be responsible for, you can't not give attention to them, right? So my dog wakes up every day needing me to give attention to him and needing me to engage with him and to, to take him outside. And, to, and so one of the ways I think we can build in habit is simply to take on something, take on responsibility mm-hmm. for something within the creation. And maybe it's something small. Maybe it's not a pet. Maybe it's you you plant a small herb garden or you put something in the ground because every day that thing is going to need your attention and it's going to force you back to it in a, in a way that only responsibility can, because if you neglect it, it will die. And in many ways, your own soul's cultivation will also die. How much do you think people, I think people are wired in the church at large to either be, I only hear God in scripture to the other extreme, which is I mostly experience God in nature. Where do you find a balance? Absolutely. You just described it perfectly. This <laughs> is the disconnect. And what I hope to be able to communicate to people is that um, the specific revelation of scripture and the general revelation of nature are two different ways that God has chosen to reveal himself. And one cannot replace the other, and they are not designed to do the same thing. So if you neglect one for the other, you're just harming yourself. You're limiting your ability to to receive what God is revealing about himself. And, And I think it's very important not to confuse the purposes that each is given to us to accomplish. So so nature is not given to us to teach us the way of salvation necessarily. It, it teaches us image and it teaches us shadow, but but it does not teach us doctrine. It does not teach us the specific revelation of scripture. At the same time, you can't understand half of what scripture is talking about if you don't give attention to natural revelation, because so much of the metaphor and the underlying categories that scripture is speaking in have to do with natural creational order that God himself has created. So I think the important thing is to tell folks, why not both? You need 
both. Well, and you know, it's funny because I, I even think about some of the, I think we tend to even want to multitask both. So I, I've caught myself in this predicament where I'd be like, okay, I really enjoy being outside. I connect with the Lord. And so I'll be like, well, I'll knock two birds with a stone. I'll listen to scripture on audio or I'll listen to worship music. And I, I got to be honest, Hannah, I found it distracting. I find sometimes that I, like, to me, they're two separate things enough that I, I sometimes need silence to enjoy nature at the spiritual level that perhaps God is trying to get me to pay attention to. Whereas if I try to cram too much in, I almost miss out on both. I'm not focused on the word and I'm not focused on nature. And I, I don't know, that's just me. Have you found a way no, that absolutely, works absolutely a similar experience for me. And I think it taps into that desire for productivity again, right? Yes. We want to get as much done as we possibly can at the same time. And I think what we must understand is that half of what nature is trying to do is to slow us down. Right. So many times in the scripture, when it talks about nature, it says things like Jesus says, consider the lilies, yeah. which is a process that can't be rushed. It, it requires time and attention. And Job, you know, within Job, um, God says, speak, you know, listen to the animals, ask the animals and they will tell you. And it's about being in dialogue and conversation. What will the natural world reveal about God that it knows? And so I do think one of the very things that nature is designed to do is to slow us down and humble us. And we have to be willing to let that happen, which requires not multicasting and not trying to be productive in it. Well, and I think your book takes us through such an easy way to focus in. I mean, you really have a beautiful descriptive uh, way of writing that I've tremendously enjoyed in the past and, and I'm enjoying now. I want to switch gears a little, though. I get a lot of emails about how to find a church and, and churches in general. It's been sort of, I think the church has a crisis of church, if I can say it this way. And so you're sort of walking through trying to find a new church. And that at the tail of, I want to hit a, on, on A, how you're landing on your church, but in particular in light of um, something that has been happening in our culture. Again, I want to talk about life and culture. And so when the shooting in Atlanta happened recently and, and the young man who um, killed a number of people ended up being, um, the story is that he is a member of a church and has struggled with pornography. And, and it's, it happens that his church is a Southern Baptist church. Of course, that SBC, the Southern Baptist church, has been in the news quite a bit of late for a number of reasons. A lot of the CRT, the critical race theory discussions, a lot of people leaving black, people leaving the SBC very loudly now. Jamar Tisby's recently talked about that. Just a lot going on with the SBC. And then the big Beth Moore exit that sort of has garnered attention of all of the major news sources. So here, here you are, the Andersons, who are going through this transitional life, and you're actually looking at joining an SBC-related church. So I know that I just threw in a lot of, you know, little explosive discussions into this sentence, but um, what do you make of all that? What, first of all, how are you navigating finding a church? And, and was there reticence in your mind and heart as you've seen what's happened in the SBC? Maybe we can spend a few minutes talking about that, and then we can come back and talk about some of those controversies. Yeah. Um, you know, it's so fascinating to be having this conversation with the conversation about seasons, because I feel like for us personally, the last 18 months has been a season of considering where we have been placed 
and where God might be leading us. So for us, the last 18 months, two years, we really felt like our sense of place and where we were called to minister almost went through an earthquake. Like mm-hmm. my life looked radically different two years ago than it does today. And as we were coming out of that, we kind of lifted our head and said, well, what has changed? What What is the same? What is different? And as part of that process, we spent probably, I'd say nine, nine months or so visiting a whole spectrum of churches um, across, you know, progressive, yeah. conservative divide, high church, low church, trying to ask this question of where are we to be? What is our mm-hmm. place? And we found that one of the other themes within that was um, the relationship between providence and God's call and our our calling in the world and our ability to make choices for ourselves within our own lives. And I think one of the tensions that are playing out right now about church, like who should you be associated with? What place should you be in? Should you stay? Should you leave? All hinge on a strong sense of we are making this choice for ourselves, for whatever we need to align with or whatever. And and I think that is part of it. I don't want to downplay that. But one of the things we have learned in this season, and we learned it within even writing this book, and I alluded to it earlier, how Nathan and I were brought together by mating tree frogs is that there is a strong role of providence in our lives. And often the places that we find ourselves, we did not get there on our own. And there are so many elements that come into our decisions that have been boundaried for us. And yes, we can make decisions within that set, but there are boundaries. And so all of that, when when I'm talking about church, we are currently worshiping um, in a church. It's, it's a little farther than I've been to church before. It's, it's uh, probably 20 minutes from where we are, um, which I know for most people, that's nothing. But we, we were accustomed to three minutes or five minutes down the road. But the church we have landed in is an SBC church. And, and I'll be honest with you, that comes with a lot of questions right now. And we wrestled through that. To say, what are we choosing? You know, we're, we feel called to this space. We feel called to join in fellowship with these people in this community. How does that all relate? And what we have really centered down on is that question. Where is God calling us? Not where do I feel like I fit the most? Not where do I have a sense of belonging? Not where do I want mm-hmm. to be? But where do I believe, based on a whole slew of factors, do I believe God is calling us to live in faithful presence and faithful witness to his truth? And I think a lot of times we worry a lot about the context of right. the space. Um, how, how would you tell somebody who's listening? So, Because really, it, I, I, I get so many emails uh, from people about a want to leave a church and so went and where to join a church and I think a lot of people have stopped going to church because they're they're paralyzed by the decision so even in, in I, and I 100% agree you want to look to where God is asking you to go and wants to use you what are practical ways for people to figure that out 
Mm. Well, I think um, for us, it has involved um, our family. So it's not just where the children need to be. If you're in a family with um, multiple people in the household, um, you are making a household decision. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and it is not something that just one individual desire leads. You are looking for the best kind of fit that both you can contribute and also meets where the individuals are. So for us, one of the features was this was a household decision. It was a decision that took into consideration all the needs and all the giftedness of all the members. And that gets sticky right away. <laughs> you know, I'm amazed you all already found a place. <laughs> yeah. a few months. <laughs> so you make a lot of compromises, right? Yeah. You're going to have to compromise. I think another thing that has been really significant to me is to see how the, the leadership of a particular church is leading. And what we have found in the church that we are in process of joining is we feel like the leadership is leading prophetically within their space. And I want to make this clear because it's very easy to kind of say, well, this church isn't doing it exactly right. Like, I would really prefer that they did it like this other group over here. But for us, we're thinking very locally and we're thinking, I live in a town that is um, Southern, it is mountain, it is predominantly white. Um, being able, let's just take the, the issue of ethnicity and race, being able to find a transracial community is almost impossible here. Mm. Almost impossible. And so when I go into a space that's predominantly white, I'm asking, how are the leaders leading within this space? Are they challenging the space or are they just going along with all the impulses and not in any way leading the congregation to question where uh, we might be sinning in different ways so i'm not looking for a perfect space i'm looking for a church or leadership that understands the unique cultural idols of my space and are willing to address them within that context in a way with courage and the gospel. And that was a huge change for me to be able to see that we're looking at a trajectory and we're looking at how they're responding to their immediate context and their immediate culture. And I think people are becoming more aware of that. And yet I still find probably the average human, if average Christian looks for a church and says, do I like the music or the hours? Do they have Sunday night serve or Saturday night service? Are they nice to me? You know, like, I wonder how much of, in fact, this would be sort of my follow-up question is how much of what's happening nationally on Twitter is actually translating into the lives of folks in the pews? On one level, even this this idea of where to go to church, but also even more, more philosophically with the SBC. So now you're at this church. Are people in the pews discussing what's happening like with the Beth Moores, with, you know, with Charlie Dates and Jamar Tisby and all of the issues that are happening with the with the ideas on CRT, et cetera. Is that translating into day-to-day life in West Virginia or West of Virginia or not? No, and I don't I think that's a really key point that most of the stuff that we see playing out online never comes up in local church life in explicit ways. And and that was the case when we were in the other um, church that we had been in for seven or eight years and Nathan was leading. 
stuff that's on Twitter doesn't make a difference to them. You know, <laughs> it's it's all ridiculous. That's that's all like inside baseball. Yeah. But they also are shaped by the culture around them. And so giving attention to what are the unique cultural local forces that are bringing to bear, being brought to bear on this particular congregation and how are we going to respond to them with the gospel is really significant. At the same time, what happens nationally does happen locally. So all of the um, conversations that are, are taking place that are in the headlines, they have a local manifestation. So it's not like you can make this big disconnect between, mm. oh, that's just kind of national politics. You know, all politics is local. And at some degree, um, you know, the tensions between all of the tensions have a, a local iteration. And we have to know how to navigate that locally within our context and what it looks like to be a faithful presence and a faithful witness to the gospel within this context in this moment. And sure. I think sometimes that gets flattened online. I agree. I agree. Uh, or magnified overly, you know, where it's like it, it, you, if you only get your news online and you're not in a local body, I think you can miss what's actually happening in real life. And conflate it, and and, and so what, what, when you heard about Beth Moore leaving the SPC, I mean, what was your, what are your some of your concerns with that news, or did you have any concerns? I mean, just as a, on one hand, there's a woman who leaves the church and it makes national news, and obviously there's a lot of. I mean, I'm not saying that it shouldn't have got, garnered the attention, but what what were some of the concerns, or are some of the concerns that you have even more within this cultural context that you describe? What are mm -hmm. the rippling effects of her departure? Well, I think. One of the first questions that started hitting the headlines and, and the conversation online is, Beth Moore leaves, will other women leave with her? Yeah. A and that was the way the question was framed. And I wrestled with that because I think I understood why she left. And I yeah. understand why God could have called her away. I, I have no need to evaluate whether Beth Moore was called of God to do what she has yeah. done none whatsoever. I think the thing that I would like to challenge is that um, her departure is her departure, yeah. and each one of us must wrestle the same way she wrestled, and we must understand the uniqueness of the call of God on our life, and the unique kind of responsibilities and the unique context that we have. And I do think, you know, she's a very visible figure. And I think as I've read some of what she said, she, she felt like she was somewhat complicit in representing this space and calling, you know, like she had a lot of influence. And most, most of us don't have that level of influence. <laughs> like the yeah. stakes are not the same. It's simply not the same question. And so I think what I would push back against the way the conversation has taken shape is to uncouple her process and her decision and her unique circumstances and her unique responsibilities from this categorical, what should women do? Because what a woman needs to do yeah in her particular context, is vastly different from what God has called Beth Moore to do. How do you think it's going to affect other women, if you were to prophetically speak into that? I think that 
it will give voice to some of what other women have been unable to express. Mm -hmm. I do think there is a resonance. I think some women who have struggled in similar spaces will say, absolutely, totally see why she did that. Would do it myself (laughs) if I could, you know, because again, you've got families, you've got all kinds of different things coming into the conversation. I think there's a resonance. I do think that um, the SBC will be worse off for the yeah. loss of her. And, and, and whoever follows suit. I mean, you don't want to become an organization that is represented by the same demographic, which is sort of the fear. So, I mean, I mean, and, I, and I, again, I don't want to put you on the spot, but if you were to advise the SBC, and you, you've got a strong voice, in the Twitter world, and and I think you're you know you've not been shy to speak out truth, and and you come from a conservative background, and yet you've been very fair in your analysis of a variety of topics that tend to be controversial in Christian conservative circles. How would you advise the SBC? It seems like everywhere you turn, it, they're the, they're the segment of the church or the evangelical church at large that seems to be picked on right now the most, but but with reason. If you're looking into it, you kind of go, well, I can kind of understand. Like it almost feels like. Like people have the Midas touch and then there's the opposite of the Midas. It almost seems like everything they're doing is sort of like maybe that has to do with the spirit of the elections and, you know, the cultural context we're in right now. But if you were to advise them, would you urge them to change course or what are some practical things they can maybe do to show that they're hearing their people better? Well, well, I think hearing is an important thing. And I think if nothing else, um, there is a call to pause long enough to recognize what is being said, to pay attention and not to dismiss it or to say, well, that person's just progressive or that person's discontent or that person's woke. Yeah. I think I would make this clear. There is a call to be able to define a problem. There is also a call to define a solution to that problem. And a Mm. lot of times in our conversations, we conflate those two. And if we don't like the solution that someone is offering, we discount how they have identified and defined the problem. And I think the best thing any organization, even a conservative organization can do is learn to separate those two things, to be able to hear someone when they are identifying and calling out a problem. And even if they don't agree with the solution or the proposed way forward to say, I can affirm that you are saying something true and real that is actually a hurdle to the gospel. And I Mm -hmm. will hear that and I will honor that. And then let's work toward a solution that maybe we can agree upon or we see is more consistent with the gospel. What I see happening in this conversation about women and conversation about race conversation about Christian nationalism is the dismissal of voices that are saying we have a problem because perhaps the proposed solution is not something you could agree with. I say separate those two things. The solutions that are being offered tend to still be rooted in whatever idea you already had. So until we get to the place where we can hear each other out, it doesn't seem like we're ever going to come to a solution, which really brings this idea. Do you believe there's a new reformation happening in the church, in the evangelical church? Well, what I told someone this last week is I feel like there has been an earthquake within conservatism, both religious conservatism and political conservatism, 
We're all standing on the fault line and the ground is opening up beneath our feet. And we are currently in the middle of trying to survive that. And people are jumping in both directions on the other side of the fault line for the sheer sake of survival. And I think what we need to understand is that, um, you know, a person may head a certain direction, even more conservative. And you have to understand that it may not be ideas propelling them that way. It may not be, yes, I really believe what's being represented on this side. But once you jump on that side, you're going to be very quickly assimilated into it. Yep. Um, and and I think that is the risk of where we are right now is there is this massive divide opening up underneath our feet. And we are in real time trying to survive it. Um, so I don't know how that all works out. I don't know where each individual is in that process, but the divide is real. And I think we need to give attention to the fact that it's happening. There is a cleavage happening right now. Uh, we definitely feel it. I think people will even feel it more as we get back into the church. I really do think it's going to, it's, I think there's a, a wake up call if it hasn't already happened to the average church going Christian. I do think it's going to show up. And what are some ways as we come to an end that you would even practically advise people to, so, so rather than jumping into an extreme for, or another, what are some good things to read? Where do you park your mind? Um, do, you, uh, do you have any advice on that? Anything that's really influenced you or even where do you, get your background material as you think through those big um, ideas that I think are are really, they sound like big ideas, but they're very practically impacting the way Mm -hmm. that we live and breathe and have our being. Well, I'm going to give you the cop-out answer, which is you need to be in your scripture. Um, I know we talked the first half about natural revelation, but there are explicit commands about how we are to love each other, how we are to live with each other, um, that I feel like have just been jettisoned in the last however many years. And if we are truly to be people of the book, if we are to be people who follow in Christ likeness, there are ways that we are to live in the church with each other. And I think, you know, the crises we are facing feel new to us, but they are not new. And, you know, we have entire books of churches and crises um, in the New Testament that the gospel is being spoken into. And so I think there is a call to just remember the basics. Remember the basics of what it means to be a Christ follower and Mm -hmm. how we respond to each other, how we forbear with each other in love, how we try to live with understanding with each other. And I don't mean tolerance. I mean like truly getting past that culture of hot takes and Um, immediate reactions that we are being primed for, like we are being tempted all the time to go against these commands of the Christian life. So I I would absolutely say be saturated in that. I do think there are some newer, younger voices perhaps speaking into um, what we're facing right now, the larger cultural forces. And these are maybe a little more uh, academic, but I think of uh, Jake Meter's work about seeking the common good. I think it's called In Search of the Common Good and that call to life of goodness together in our Mm. local places. Um, Alan Noble has some good work. He has a book coming out in the next few months called You Are Not Your Own. And it just breaks that kind of cultural um, narrative that we are isolated individuals making our own lives. And so Mm. I, I think 
there are some folks tackling these larger forces that have created this moment. Um, I love, I, I just got a copy of uh, Rebecca McLaughlin's, um, oh, I don't know the title, but it was her uh, Case for Christianity, the 10 questions is 14. Yeah. Um, yep. That yep. was fantastic. Um, she's doing great work too. Yeah, I would agree with all of these things. And of course, as we come to an end, I would want to give the, whoever's, all of you guys should be still listening. This is honestly just such a great conversation, Hannah. I want to give away two of your, before we get to the new book, I want to actually give away two of the all that's good. I think that's a great resource for someone who's listening and wondering, like, you know, I think the subtitle says it all, Recovering the Lost Art of Discernment. I think that would encourage people who are listening, even in the vein of the second half of our conversation. So I want to give two of those away. So if that's the book you want, all that's good, email me at lena at livingwithpower.org. And then let's give away two turning of days. And uh, uh, that book is so pretty. I love that turtle on the front. And I would encourage you, if you don't win a copy, send me the email at lena at livingwithpower.org. You need to buy it if you don't. uh, if you don't win it. But again, y'all have been great to submit a lot of emails. If you won before, we probably will skip sending you another one. We just want to keep it fair. But really, I love this part of the podcast where we just uh, have a, the ability to generously share these amazing uh, resources that we come across. And so, Hannah, what are some ways people can connect with you? Well, um, I have a website. It's sometimesalight.com. I'm also on Instagram under my name, Hannah Anderson, and um, I'm on Twitter at sometimesalight. And as you mentioned, I probably spend just a pinch too much time on Twitter. (laughs) I enjoy reading your thoughts uh, as many thousands others do. And we're very glad for the, I I, I tell you, I, uh, sometimes I read your tweets and I have no idea what you're saying. I got to go back and read it three times. And and then other times I I love the comments and then your engagement, of course, with the comments. It's just, uh, honestly, that's where I learn a lot of the stuff that I pick up. And I I find that, again, I think keeping a balanced approach, even in what you read on Twitter is so critical. But I appreciate your biblical groundedness and perspective in everything you do. And uh, thank you for coming on again. I know you've got a lot going on. So uh, you guys, if you're still listening, um, I love that you're still here. And please come back again next week. We're going to probably go back to a Dear Lena episode next week. In the meantime, if you have any question, even a follow-up to what we've talked about today, send it to dearlena at livingwithpower.org. And uh, we will get that on the podcast. Uh, Love you guys. And I'm thankful for you. Remember that God is really with us everywhere we go. So open your eyes today. See beauty and see the presence of God in us, but also in this gift of creation he's given us. Have a great day.